0: Now, we generally don't take time to uh, talk about a lot of things. We get right into the study, but I think that since this is our first time for the season, I think we'll just state again that uh, when you come in, uh, there's coffee and donuts over here in my left, at your right, and um, you're welcome to just take them. If you want to drop something in a little cup there, then that kind of perpetuates the coming of the donuts. I, I don't understand how they change that money into donuts so easily, but it happens week after week. And uh, it's not uh, uh, it's not uh, obligatory at all. You needn't feel uh, as though um, we can't get donuts without your donation, so it's no big deal, okay? But we just want you to know it's available there. Um, we start promptly at 6 o'clock with a reading of that uh, text. Come when you can. Some people sleep in a little bit accidentally. You know, they fall asleep after the alarm. They get up and, and they look at it and they, oh, it's too late, I'll be late and then they go back to bed. Don't do that. If you have to be late, come anyway. All right? And uh, we don't mind you coming late. Um, we also don't mind if you leave early. Uh, there are probably a couple of reasons why people have to leave early. One, maybe because they're under conviction some point along the line. <laughs> and another is because maybe you have to get to work. And the neat thing about coming here is nobody'll know the difference. You walk out, and everybody'll say, "Well, he must have had to get to work." See, and you can get out just in time. Uh, but uh, it's like it's like William Carey when he was in India. Uh, he had a he had an Indian uh, leader living in his home with him. And one morning, uh, early early in the morning, somebody met this guy rushing out of the house you know, with a suitcase with the clothes still hanging out of it and uh, running out the door. And they said, what what in the world, where are you going? And he said, I've got to get out of here. I'll become a Christian in spite of myself. (laughs) So in any event, uh, we just want you to feel free to do that. Some of you uh, do have to get to work uh, by seven. And we're just glad that you feel the freedom to be able to come and enjoy this time and then slip out a little bit early. And, um, And we just hope that that uh, you will make this a Wednesday morning habit. We also would like to suggest that if you have sons, and if you're able to drag them out of the sack, we'd love to have your sons with us. We've got um, some sharp young men that have been going through Proverbs with us here, and uh, uh, been growing up with Proverbs. And some of the dads that have the time are even um, bringing their, their sons. And then after we have our Bible study... Uh, they slip over to a restaurant and buy him breakfast and talk about what we've talked about here. And if you want to do that, man, I'll tell you, what a way to disciple your son. And uh, it's uh, just an opportunity for you to grow uh, and uh, for him to grow as well. We have notes available. And uh, my secretary tells me uh, that we have um, um, right through um, chapter 11... About verse what here? I've got to get back here, a ways. And verse thirteen, uh, so you're even a little. Uh, we're even a little ahead of of uh, where we've ever been at the beginning of class. Uh, so she's all caught up, and uh, so we have these new pages. All right, this would be um, pages uh, three forty-eight to three seventy-four of our study of Proverbs, there are complete sets for any of you that may be new. I don't know how many, but there's some complete sets back there in that box. And all of the fairly recent old pages are are there as well. And then anything older that's needed, if you have a missing page or something of this sort, you can get that from the church office anytime. Uh, we try to keep up on, on uh, these Proverbs notes and you're just welcome to take them and use them. If you have friends that uh, they can be a blessing to that will really use them, then feel free to take them for them as well. Another little preliminary matter is just something that I like to do whenever we can, just to get you oriented to what the book of Proverbs really is. And I want to take time to do that this morning again, even though it's a review for some of you. Um, Remember that the books, the book of Proverbs and the Psalms uh, in particular uh, were, uh, were written in what we call parallelisms, uh, where parallel thoughts are brought together and uh, where one line uh, does one thing and the other line does something else. Um, and uh, uh, we've got a little couplet that we often hear that is like that, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. That's an example uh, of uh, of what we call uh, a dishtik uh, it's that's a German word, not a Hebrew word or an English word, uh, but it's a it's the common word that is used to describe uh, this kind of parallelism. It's the German word that uh, means that same thing and uh, the the idea of uh, a dishtik is d. Di- uh, the di is that which equals two, and then the the word, and I'm sure I don't pronounce it the way a German would, but the word stick or line. Okay, so it's it's two lines, and actually, um, there are more complex. Parallelisms in the Psalms and Proverbs, but the primary um, thing that you have is the coupling together of two lines that have some kind of a relationship. Uh, and there are really eight kinds of dishticks that are discernible in the Psalms and Proverbs. Uh, the first one is uh, what we call a synonymous, S-Y-N-O-N-Y-M-O-U-S. A synonymous dishtick. It's the simplest kind of a dish-tick. What it does is this. The first line gives a truth. Just gives some kind of a principle or some kind of a truth. And then the second line simply repeats the same truth in different words. Uh, It it gives it to you in such a way so that the truth is is laid out. uh, Probably in very clear form. But uh, then it's repeated; only different words are used in order to bring bring about the emphasis of that uh, and the importance. Uh, you want to maybe look at uh, Proverbs 11:25. Uh, that's an example. The liberal soul shall be made fat, and he that watereth shall be watered also himself. Now you can see that there is a th- those two thoughts are synonymous. They're not the same words. Uh, they're, they're, they're not just a repetition uh, of exactly the same vocabulary, but the principle of the liberal soul being fat is enhanced by using another illustration, which is that if you water, you're going to be watered yourself. All right? Another one is uh, Psalm 3, verse 1. Lord, how are they increased that trouble me? Many are they that rise up against me. And whenever you have the two thoughts put side by side there, there generally is some additional information given in the the second line that enhances the first. Uh, Just many, many more of those that we find in Proverbs and you find in Psalms and helps you really understand uh, he's not saying two different things, but rather he's saying the same thing twice. The second kind is what we call a synthetic tick. Synthetic is from the verb to synthesize. It means a combination of several different parts and uh, then put together to form the whole. What happens with a synthetic dish stick is that you have a line that gives you a particular doctrine. And uh, then you have a second line that develops the first by by some additional doctrine. For instance, in Proverbs 10, verse 18... He that hideth hatred has lying lips. And he that uttereth slander is a fool. Right? Now those aren't the same thing. But rather it's, it's adding one doctrine to another. another. If you go to some text of scripture, you'll see that God hates, in chapter 6 as an example of Proverbs, you'll find that God hates the liar and God hates the slanderer. They're both bad. In this particular case, they're linked up and zero in on those particular sins. Psalm 95 verse 3, uh, for the Lord is a great God. Now there's a doctrine concerning God. God is great. But then the next line says, and a great king above all gods. All right? So there again you have you have the addition of, of a doctrine. Now then you have what is probably the most common of all of the districts in the uh, book of Proverbs, and it's what we call antithetical, uh, anti being against or opposite, and put together, it just simply means that which gives a truth, and then a contrasting truth, and the contrasting truth enhances the first truth, and uh, it's a simple contrast. Proverbs fourteen thirty: A sound heart is the life of the flesh, but envy the rottenness of the bones. Psalm 1.6, The Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the, go- uh, the ungodly shall perish. So just a simple little particle in the Greek that uh, that makes a, a sentence antithetical. And uh, you just have this particularly, beginning in the first part of chapter 10 and going right down to chapter 23, uh, most of that whole section of the Proverbs uh, have antithetical ticks. We're right in the middle of that because we're in chapter 11. Uh, and uh, you just have one right after another. In some cases the author has translated it and. But when you look at it you realize uh, it, it, it means but. Uh, You can see it in the English as well as in, uh, of course, in the Hebrew, uh, with the same particle. Actually, the connectives can be translated and. But when it's an obvious contrast, it probably should more consistently be translated but. You have many, many, many of these. So you'll find those as well. Then, you have uh, some of the less common. We have what we call emblematic, an emblematic tick. Sometimes called parabolic, uh, it, you have uh, one line giving what we call the didactic or the teaching, um, and then the second has an illustration of it, and uh, that's an, it's an interesting parallelism. And uh, it, for instance, uh, you you would have uh, sometimes it would be turned around. Uh, you would have the the illustration first, and then have the doctrine. And uh, there's, a, there's a great one in uh, Proverbs 11:22. You might want to share this with your wife. Um, it says, As a jewel of gold in a wine snout. Now that's the illustration, obviously. So is a fair woman who is without discretion. <laughs> that's, uh, you know, quite a complimentary thing, you know. That, but if you, if you think in terms of a of, of beautiful, beautiful, beautiful woman who just does not have any sense at all. You realize how uh, illustrative this is. It's like a, a jewel of gold in a swine's snout. Uh, another, another word uh, that's again the same way. The didactic statement is the second rather than the first. It says, As the heart, that is the stag, panteth after the water brook, so my soul panteth after thee, O God if you've ever been in the woods and ever seen um, a uh, a stag uh, having been run perhaps chased by hunters uh, and having been run hard foaming at the mouth from the exertion and it finds a stream uh, it just looks like it's going to drink that stream right up and uh, you get an idea of how David was trying to describe his thirst and his longing for God you see and so that's the emblematic. Then there's what we call a climactic. Climactic is where the second line repeats the first. But it has an added climax to it. It, uh, it adds some punch. All right. Psalm 29 verse 1 says this. Give unto the Lord, O ye mighty. Give unto the Lord glory and strength. See, just, it's got that added little something. Uh, Psalm 148, verse 1: 1, Praise ye the Lord. That's the statement. Then it says, "Praise ye the Lord from the heavens." That's adding the climax. And then it adds another word. In this, happens to be a three-line uh, a poem, and it says, "Praise him in the heights," which is a synonymous district added to the uh, the climactic. So, praise the Lord. Praise ye the Lord. That's the statement, praise you the Lord from the heavens. That's the added climax. And then the added climax is repeated in different words. All right? So that's another way. By the way, that climactic parallelism is, is rather rare in Scripture. You find it in the Psalms. I don't think you find any of them in the Proverbs. Then you have what we call an integral, integral uh, dish tick. The integral dish tick, the first line starts a thought. Uh, but it leaves it incomplete, and it completes it in the second line. It's almost like it's not two thoughts at all, but just one. Um, Proverbs thirteen fourteen says, The law of the wise is a fountain of life to depart from the snares of death. Right? And what that is is an integral dish stick. And then there's a comparative. Just looked at one that could be considered a comparative, because sometimes... It'll fall into two categories. As a jewel of gold in the swine's snout, so is a fair woman. So is is the clue. Um, but probably the better um, uh, comparative dish ticks are uh, like Proverbs 15:17. Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a stalled ox and hatred therewith. We had one this morning, didn't we? And you all chuckled a little bit. It's better to have uh, steak Better to have, uh, what, soup uh, with, a, you know, with, with a friend than steak with someone that hates you or whatever. Uh, Psalm 37, verse 16. A little, uh, a little that a righteous man hath is better than. Now, if you look for the better than, there are about 20 better thans in the book of Proverbs. If you look for that phrase, better than, or the equivalent of it, you'll discover these comparative uh, dish ticks. And then there's what we call a formal A formal tick. That's where um, uh, the unusual um, matter of two lines fitting together in metric form. If you're going to write a poem today, you would always write it this way. Because in English, we write it with metric considerations. You know, the... Uh, you, you think of, of how the beat, if you've ever studied lit, uh, you know the te- teacher talks about where the how the beat goes and how in the second line of the poem you have to copy the beat so that you have the same rhythm in the two, otherwise it's not you know good poetry and all that unless you're writing free verse, uh, things of that nature. And But the Hebrews did not write their poetry that way. They wrote it these other ways, putting parallelisms together everywhere you go, uh, you find those parallelisms in all of of Hebrew literature, even uh, in the in first and second kings and chronicles, every once in a while you 'll find a little section where there will be this parallelism that was their poetry and it didn 't have to have a rhythm to it it didn 't have to rhyme um, the scots uh, Scottish people in the uh, in the Free Church of Scotland, uh, because of their emphasis on singing psalms, went through and uh, and and they they made all of the psalms rhyme in fact to read the scottish psalter is really a it's really a treat uh, because they took all the psalms and they wrote they rewrote them without changing the meaning it was really skillful without changing the meaning they took the english words and they worked them around so they all have metric consideration and they all rhyme and some of them man do they have to force the words you know uh, you can't, you, 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 you've got to twist your words around. Uh, a very popular one is uh, uh, the 23rd Psalm. Uh, the Lord, my shepherd, uh, I'll not want, he makes me down to lie. <laughs> you know, <laughs> instead of saying it the way we say it in English, they got to rearrange all of the words because they couldn't mess with the words. They just had to uh, try to get them in some kind of form so that we could sing them in English. That was no consideration in Hebrew. But there is an occasion where you do have a formal distich, where you actually uh, you actually have metric consideration. Uh, Psalm 2:6. In fact, the whole of Psalm 2 deals with with that, where the two lines are fit together. I have set my I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. It's got a rhythm to it, and it follows through all the way through the psalms. So that's a very unusual uh, sort of thing as well. But that's that's what we have to do then. With all of our proverbs, we have to consider their uh, their various dish sticks and uh, give ourselves to that uh, as well as to the word study and the understanding of the meaning and the comparing scripture with scripture. Uh, one of the things we try to do, and because because we're in no hurry, um, the it's actually job security. I can't leave Valley Church until I finish Proverbs, and so, uh, but we have a we have a marvelous uh, opportunity here because we don't have to feel as though we have to cover this overnight we can take the time to see how particular thoughts that are brought up in proverbs are developed into into full-blown doctrines elsewhere in scripture you always to understand scripture you should compare scripture with scripture it's the wisest thing that you can do in any bible study uh, just remember that you may You may be able to get a lot of help uh, from the commentaries, but uh, George Whitfield, in his journal, uh, talks about the fact that he came to a bony truth uh, that he couldn't quite grasp. And he he read uh, Matthew Henry and found out what Matthew Henry had to say uh, about uh, about the text. And uh, then he turned to Calvin And he discovered that Calvin said something that was totally opposite of what Matthew Henry had said. And by the time he'd read all of the commentaries available to him, he was very confused. And in his journal he writes, And then takes I my Bible, and upon my knees before God, he said, I read the Holy Scriptures, and I discover that the Bible surely does shed a lot of light on the commentaries. I think that that's, of course, the thing that we always want to do. The Bible will always shed light on the commentaries. And you need to understand Scripture. And so we try to, though we give you some thoughts that we hope will be helpful in terms of application, we try to to help you understand the meaning of words as they're used throughout Scripture. Uh, Far better, if you want to know the meaning of a word, Uh, In the Hebrew, especially, it's far better to go to the text and find all the uses of that word throughout the Old Testament, rather than merely go to a lexicon. A lexicon only gives you a limited amount of information, but if you can use an analytical text and understand, uh, understand where the words can be found. Uh, and, and use there are a number of helps available to help you do that, and a good concordance is a good place to start. You can take a, a text of Scripture and examine each of the words in that text as to their usage elsewhere in Scripture, and it'll give you a wealth of understanding of what that text it happens to be saying. So we're going to be doing that, and uh, we'll just uh, enjoy it and take our time, and uh, even though we... Uh, We stopped with this last time. We are going to uh, begin with it today. And that is verse 15 uh, of uh, Proverbs chapter 11. All right? That's where we will start today. It's an uh, antithetical dish tick. And um, it says this. He that is surety for a stranger shall smart for it. And he that hateth suretyship is secure. J. Vernon McGee says that he that goes surety for, or translates this, he that goes surety for a stranger shall smart for it, and he will get smart from it. <laughs> he will learn that he made a big mistake. That's uh, the Vernon McGee um, transliteration here. <laughs> In any event, he that is surety. The word surety is the word Arab. And that particular word means uh, to braid or to intermix. It means to barter. And uh, uh, thus to give oneself or his possessions as security. To guarantee another person's debts. That's what surety was. It's when you co-sign a note. And that's the thing that is involved here. The Arabic root... Included the idea of a pledge uh, that was involved. And uh, you can see this meaning of uh, to mix by looking at some texts of Scripture. For instance, look at Psalm 106. Psalm 106. And uh, verse 35. It says here but were mingled, the people of Israel. And this particular psalm is talking about all the, their past uh, iniquity and so on. It says they were mingled among the nations and learned their works. Now that's the same word, to mingle, uh, to, to mix together, all right? I uh, look at Ezra, the book of Ezra, chapter 9. Ezra. Chapter 9, verse 2. For they have taken of their daughters for themselves and their sons, so that the holy seed have mixed themselves. The uh, King James uses the word mingled themselves with the people. There's that same word used again. Look over at Proverbs 14 and verse 10. The heart knoweth its own bitterness... And a stranger doth not intermeddle with its joy, or does not mix together uh, with its joy. It's used also in Proverbs 20 and verse 19. Verse 20 and verse, uh, chapter 20, verse 19. He that goeth about as a talebearer revealeth secrets. Therefore meddle not, mix not, with him that flattereth with his lips. And then in chapter 24 and verse 21. My son, fear thou the Lord and the King, and meddle not, or don't mix with them that are given to change, or to the rebellious uh, individuals. So uh, that, th- that, that's uh, the basic meaning of the word. Uh, the, the word, though, uh, also can mean to exchange or to barter. Uh, you look at, uh, ex- uh, look at Ezekiel chapter 27, and you'll see there the use of this word, to trade or to barter. Verse 9, it says, "...the ancients of um, Gebal and its wise men were in thee, thy cockers, all the ships of the sea with their mariners, were in thee to exchange, to trade, to barter, thy merchandise." Same thing in verse 27, says basically the same thing. It can mean, though, to pledge or to mortgage. And uh, by extension, has the idea of a gamble or a risk or a dare um, Nehemiah chapter uh, five in verse three nehemiah five three it says, uh, some also there were who said, we have mortgaged our lands, vineyards, houses, that we might buy grain because of the famine. It means then to put something up for uh, mortgage. And uh, also, uh, in Jeremiah, there's an interesting use there. In the book of Jeremiah chapter 30, and verse 21, it says, "...and their nobles shall be of themselves, and their governor shall proceed from the midst of them, and I will cause him to draw near. Uh, he shall approach unto me. Uh, for who is it that engaged his heart to approach unto me?" And the, the uh, word engaged there, the New American Standard Bible, has that translated to uh, risk his life, or to, uh, to uh, uh, the idea of risk, or the idea of dare, or the idea of danger, you see, who would risk his life to do this. But it's the same word, all right? So it means that idea of risking. The major use in the book of Proverbs is the idea of becoming surety. Or to be bail uh, for something over in the uh, we won't turn to it but Genesis chapter forty three uh, and uh, verse nine and also in forty four verse thirty two uh, it's the story of Joseph when he met his brothers and you remember that Joseph had one of the brothers Reuben stay behind uh, as a guarantee uh, that uh, the the fellows would come back with their younger brother uh, Benjamin who Joseph wanted to, uh, wanted to see and wanted to meet. They, of course, didn't know who he was. But this was a requirement that he made. It guaranteed a return trip. Put this, this brother uh, in, in detention. And uh, in the process, then uh, the others would have to eventually come back or the brother could not be released. That was the idea behind it. And he put his, it's the same word. He allowed himself to be surety. Uh, he he placed himself as a pledge. That's the idea of the thing here. He put his. It's the same word. He allowed himself to be surety. Uh, he he placed himself as a pledge. That's the idea of the thing here. Uh, Judah uh, was uh, was. Uh, sh- uh, I said Reuben. It was Judah that was surety for Benjamin in that case. And this is the uh, an example really. Of laying down one's life for his friend, the thing that we have to realize is this: that in terms of dealing w- in the secular world, as we're going to see this develop, as we deal with people, God as a principle, as a as as an encouragement, not as a command per se. There's a difference between the law and the proverbs. Uh, God is God is not saying uh, that uh, it is. Sin for you to be surety for a stranger. I'm not saying that at all. He's not even saying sin for you to be surety for a friend. Uh, he, what he's saying is, it's not sensible. It's stupid. All right. And a lot of stupid Christians. If you want to be a stupid Christian, you go ahead and do it. I mean, that's fine. But the point is that he doesn't say it's, it doesn't say it's it's uh, a wrong thing that it's sin. He's not judging you. You judge yourself if you are surety for a stranger. But you see, there is a time and a place for surety. It was certainly right for Judah to be willing uh, to be surety for Benjamin. He says, I'll be willing to surrender my life in the place. You remember the story in the, in the case of Joseph. Uh, you remember that, that uh, Joseph, in order to trick his brothers... So that he ultimately could reveal himself to them, he put the the, the gold uh, or the silver goblet, his own personal goblet, in the sack of grain that Benjamin carried. And uh, the idea was that Joseph wanted to see if his brothers had had any change of heart. They had sold him into slavery. What would they do if their younger brother was in trouble? What would, did they have any respect for their father at all? And uh, so that's why he did it. And when they came and they found that cup in that sack and they brought him back, here comes Judah. And he says, look, take my life, but let him go. Why, he's already lost one of his precious sons, Joseph. And now if he loses another one, it will break his heart. It will break dad's heart. And so let me be surety for him. Let me take his place. And you see, that was a good thing. And it was the thing that won the heart of Joseph. And Joseph expelled all of those uh, men, the the soldiers that would be his guards. And he was in the room alone with his brothers. And he said, I'm Joseph. He revealed himself to them because he could see that at least to some degree there had been a change in heart because they were willing now to lay down their life on the behalf of this brother for the sake of their father. And there was one a long time ago who is surety for you. God says it's not sensible for you to co-sign a note. Not sensible. In fact, in one place, is, we'll see in a few moments, uh, uh, or next week, whichever comes first. Uh, <laughs> we, <laughs> we will uh, we, we'll see... That God God says rather facetiously, or the, the Proverbs say rather facetiously, uh, that, that why should they come and take your bed? Because some other guy won't pay his debts. See? Why should you have to pay? Because someone else uh, can't be trusted and can't be counted upon. It's not a wise thing for you to co-sign a note with someone else. But you have Jesus Christ, who came and became your surety. He died in your place. He gave His life and gave it up so that you might be free. I don't know how, how much that grips you. But I'll tell you, my heart just trembles when I think of that. I deserved that cross. I should have died there. There was no possible way that I could ever pay the debt. I was up to debt. I was in debt up to here and then some. And I never, ever, ever could have paid that debt. And he came along and said, I'll be surety for you. If you're here today and don't know Jesus Christ, if you're here today and you've never come and taken a good look at what happened 2,000 years ago, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to become surety for us, to pay our debt, A debt we could never have paid. A debt that would have brought about our death, And he who was innocent, he who who owed no debt, he who had all of the treasure and all of the riches of glory, came and became surety and guarantee our debt. So that when I stand before God, God may look at the pages that would list all of the debt that I owe. But on top of it is going to be written, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. There's nothing in all of the world that is more important than coming to grips with that truth. That Jesus Christ became surety for me. doesn't make any sense. But you see, if all of the money in the world could purchase my salvation... God had it Good night he uses He uses gold, which is so precious these days for asphalt. He would have no no problem getting together a money ransom to buy my soul and the reason the reason that God did not do all of that, the reason that he did. What he did in sending his son, Jesus Christ, the innocent, to die for the guilty is because, my friends, there was no other alternative. The enormity of my sin could never be paid off with money or with works or with anything material. It could only be the substitute of a life for a life and Jesus Christ became my surety and died for my sin because there was no other way. There was no other way. When he died for my sin, he died for your sin. If you don't know him today, and we're beating our gums up here for no purpose, the wisdom of the book of Proverbs Is foolishness to an individual who doesn't know the Savior. And that's why we have to start there. He is our surety. That's a simple thing, really. God made all the provision. And God lays before you the simple contract that if you'll simply receive Jesus Christ as your own personal Savior, believing he is indeed the very son of God, believing that he died for your sins as your substitute taking your place and if you believe that he rose from the dead you place your faith in him and God then undertakes with all the power of heaven to save you. The nature of salvation is such that God goes into action when you give him leave to do so in your life he'll not force himself on you he will not make you go to heaven he will simply make himself available and let you make a choice but having made that choice God undertakes to save you eternally I'll tell you beloved it's a a marvelous thing that God has done and is doing it's called so great salvation well back to the text here the idea then of becoming surety it's it's fascinating little text over in, in Job chapter 17 verse 3 where basically it's saying this that uh, using this same word job is saying god i'm a bad risk <laughs> I, it's exactly what I am too. I'm a bad, I'm a bad risk. But in in that text, it says this: uh, "Lay lay down now, put me in surety with thee. Who is he that will strike hands with me? When he was a rich man, I imagine that back at that time that he probably, because he was a generous man." Uh, he probably guaranteed the debts of a number of people. It may have been a very common thing. And uh, yet here he was broke. He'd been wiped out. And his physical uh, properties were nothing. And uh, he now was as poor as the poor. Physically, he was he was uh, down to uh, barely... You know, what do you do when you got boils all over your body? You can't sit, you can't stand, you can't lay down... You see? And he looks at all of this, and he says, he says to God, you know, I, right now I need somebody to take a risk. But who in the world would ever take a risk with me? Who would ever be able to guarantee my debt? And, uh, and then he, of course, is acknowledging that God is the one uh, that could indeed um, risk, uh, risk the, the things that were involved in order to b- redeem him. Psalm 119, verse 122, there's, uh, again, the the psalmist there is basically asking God to be surety. Asking God to do the very thing that we spoke of in just a moment. And uh, one person has written this that I think is, is so beautiful. It says... Uh, the one exception we can never forget. The blessed Jesus from his free grace unsought, unasked, became surety not for a friend in which case we should have no interest but for a stranger. He became one with us in nature that he might be one with us in law. He took our place under the curse of the broken law. He put his soul to the fullest extent in our soul's place. And then he made our nature pay the debt which all the angels of heaven could never have paid. Oh, this was suffering indeed. How he suffered under the stroke of the Father's hand. The upholder of the universe was prostrate in the dust. His own creature strengthening his his sinking frame. He had hated surety, had he hated surety ship, he would have been sure for what could have disturbed his self-existent happiness. But we should have perished glory to his name. Through from, though from all eternity he knew the bitterness of pain instead of hating, he rejoiced and delighted in his work. His was no rash engagement. It was the arrangement of an everlasting covenant. It was lawful in every way. There was a definite treasure to discharge the liabilities. The claims of justice were fully satisfied. Sin was as thoroughly punished as it was thoroughly pardoned. The family of God suffered no injury but received direct benefit instead. What is there left for us to do but to fall down before His grace and to spend our days as we will spend our eternity in adoring this wondrous display of divine glory? Ah, He was surety for us. Again, in Isaiah 38, in verse 14, Isaiah pleads for God to be surety for Him. And we have that one who gave his, his himself a ransom for us now in Proverbs chapter 6 and we want to go back there a moment Proverbs chapter 6 verses 1 and 2 we have the beginning of this doctrine of surety it says this my son if thou be surety for thy neighbor or for thy associate that's one of the people that is warning against becoming a uh, becoming surety for. That is your associate, your uh, your neighbor or uh, someone who is clo- uh, closely akin to you. And then it says, if thou hast struck thy hand with a stranger, there's someone else that you might uh, become surety for. Someone you don't know very well. Someone who is not closely associated with you, but someone who... Offers, who says to you, uh, I'll, uh, "I'll pay you back, and you, with big interest, and I'll guarantee that you're going to get all the all all of this back, but you're going to make a huge profit." But you don't know the fellow very well. Uh, that's another person that you can be involved with. Notice what he says: that if you do that, either with an associate or with a stranger, thou art snared with the words of thy mouth. Thou art taken with the words of thy mouth. Having made that pledge, you have obligated yourself, you have stuck yourself, you have obligated yourself for another person's debts. And here's what you're to do. Do this now, my son, deliver thyself, when thou art come to the hand of thy neighbor. Go humble yourself, and importune thy neighbor. Beg him, bug him, nag him give not sleep to your eyes nor slumber to your eyelids deliver yourself like a roll from the hand of the hunter and like a bird from the hand of the fowler in other words if you have done this the best thing in the world for you to do is you're stuck but if you can get the guy to um, give you that contract back and uh, get the money back and get the thing settled uh, do it just as quickly as you can if you can't do that then uh, look out! You're liable uh, to you're liable to lose what you had anyway. You probably will, and so you have to be you have to be ready for that as well. But that's that's the advice that is given here on that score. Then in chapter twenty and verse sixteen, it says, "Take his garment that is surety for a stranger." In this particular place, it is. Uh, it is trying to illustrate something to us. And it's basically saying that if you cosign with someone else, you deserve to lose your shirt. Okay? And, notice, take a pledge of him for a foreign woman. What he's trying to get across here is the idea that if you get involved with a prostitute, that you are putting up more than surety. And uh, therefore, you're, you're going to, you're going to I- incur uh, a debt, an obligation, uh, that is going to be difficult to ever, uh, to ever resolve. And that's that particular. So there's the stranger again, or the, the person you don't know very well, and the foreign woman in this case. And then Proverbs 27 and verse 13 says this, Take his garment as surety for a stranger, take a pledge of him for a foreign woman. again, saying the same thing. chapter 17 verse 18 17:18. 18. A man void of understanding cosigns a note, striketh hands, and becometh surety in the presence of his neighbor. You're willing to pledge your assets to guarantee another person's debt. You're giving evidence that you're a man void of understanding. So there again it's talking about doing it with a neighbor. And then in chapter 22, verse 26, Be not thou one of those who strikes hands or of of those who are sureties for debts. Now, I love this one. If thou hast nothing to pay, why should he take away thy bed from under thee? Why should they come and foreclose on your house when another person is the one that owed the debt? That's the idea. And then our text, of course, in chapter eleven and verse 15, don't strike hands with a stranger. So you have a whole a whole list of, of involvements there. The stranger, the neighbor, the associate, the foreign woman, and so on. And uh, in this particular case, it's the stranger. Now, who is the stranger? Stranger is the zur. The zur. Sixty-nine times in the Old Testament... And This particular word is used as a participle. And only seven otherwise. It's used of one who is strange to the law in Leviticus chapter 10 and verse 1. It's used to one that is strange to another's household. See, in other words, to the law to the nation of Israel, that would be the unbeliever. One that does not understand or know God's law and God's principles. And then Uh, One that is strange to the household. In Deuteronomy 25, verse 5. So, he's a stranger to the household. That is, he's not a part of your immediate family. Uh, Proverbs chapter 14 and verse 10 uses the word just to speak of another person. He's not you. Um, That uh, particular verse uh, says, if I can find it here... The heart knoweth its own bitterness, and a stranger doth not intermeddle with its joy. And so he is not, uh, uh, he is someone who is a a stranger to you. He cannot, a person cannot really understand you unless he's you. All right? And uh, anyone else is a stranger to you. Okay? Now, of course, the idea of not striking hands, may I put this in is not encouraging selfishness. One of the things you should remember is that God doesn't want you to guarantee another person's debts. That's not good for you, and it's not good for Him. But God wants you to take all of your assets and help a person who's really in need, and give it to him. Not guarantee his debts, but give him a gift if he really needs it. That's a whole lot safer. Instead of... uh, uh, having having somebody uh, come and foreclose on you, uh, then you would you would be able to you would be able to uh, have a relationship with a person on a continuing basis, without having to worry about that. If the person uh, wants to in the future give you something back, he's free to do so. So it's not encouraging selfishness. It's not it's not an unself- it's not a selfish thing for you to say no. I won't guarantee your debt. But if you do what you can for that person in helping his real needs, you may be able to give him some real guidance. So, but it is saying that a person who is not you, say, is a stranger then to you. He can't really understand you or understand your problems. Then in Hosea chapter 7, verse uh, 9, it's talking about uh, the land, a person that is not from your land. The Greek... Uh, uh, used the the word uh, that that meant a, a person is not a part of your city state. Uh, every every uh, uh, area had a city state, sort of like a county in the ancient world, in the Greek world. And anyone who was not a part of that particular city state was considered to be a stranger. And uh, the idea is that that is not a He's not a close associate. He makes a, <clears throat> he makes a contrast between the close associate, who also you shouldn't co-sign a note with, and uh, the person who is less known to you. But he says that whoever strikes hands with a stranger, whoever uh, co-signs a note with a stranger, shall smart for it. Or one uh, tra- a Jewish translation of the scriptures says it, uh, it forces ill I I, I can't quite read my writing here, that's terrible it fares ill that's what it is, it fares ill nothing but ill with one who is a surety for another the idea of smarting for it uses the word ruah which we don't have time, I just looked at the clock, that clock's a little fast though, it's just 7 o'clock on the nose according to my watch Let's pray. (laughs) We'll come to the rest of it next week and get on to the next verse as well. Thank you, Father, for all that you're doing in our lives. We thank you for this beginning again of this study. We pray that we will learn these lessons well. Oh, Lord, right now we would thank you that even though you say that to us it is foolish for us to be surety for another, In the sense of paying his debts. Yet you paid our debt.